0: We're back with another episode of the Defend and Confirm podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. And this morning, we are going to be, uh, this is going to be the last episode in our series on critical theory, and then even more specifically, our last episode in our mini-series on critical race theory. Uh, Before we get started, I just want to remind uh, our viewers, our listeners, one more time that we are a Christian podcast (laughs) that is particularly aimed at uh, doing apologetics, okay? And and so for some people, this episode may seem like we're veering away from that vision because we're going to be talking about... Uh, really statistical reasons why we think critical race theory is is an inaccurate way to talk about what's happening in our society today. And so some people might wonder, some of our fans may, begin, may be wondering, if we're beginning to move over into social commentary and away from apologetics. Russell, how would you respond to that?
1: Well, uh, I would love to not be talking about this.
0: Man, listen.
1: I would love for it to not be an issue that that has consequences in the church yeah. that affects the gospel. Uh, but unfortunately, this all the stuff we're going to be talking about today is all upstream from a very serious gospel issue, yeah. which is that critical race theory is a significant threat to the unity in the church.
0: Yeah. We've already seen it do significant damage. We think it's only going to get worse from here. So in order to deal with that, we kind of have to deal with this. That's right. Okay. Uh, So a couple more introductory matters. Um, Russell, over the last couple of weeks, as I've been talking to people, reaching out to them, asking, hey, what have you thought about the Critical Race uh, series that we've done? Uh, I think everyone has said, hey, it's good, but it's... Way over my head <laughs> and, and I think we would agree, right, yeah. oh yeah, this is very heady stuff it is um, so our aim today is to try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf we 're going to be just talking about uh, statistics, but even then we 're going to be doing it in a way that I think is easy for people to really wrap their minds around yeah. and, and brother, that's particularly owing to you 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 are so sharp, you have such. Uh, you have such a, you do such a good job of taking complex things and simplifying them, and I think we're going to see that in this morning's episode.
1: Yeah, Lord willing, uh, we'll be putting the cookies on the bottom shelf yeah, so that's that, right. this, that any Christian can hear this and understand this and make use of it.
0: Yeah. Um, also, uh, let's talk about the reason why this is going to be the last episode on CRT. We, we said that there are like six main pillars of critical race theory, and uh, we haven't really tried to break each one of them down and show why they're false. We did that with critical Mm -hmm. contemporary critical theory. Uh, But we think that what we're going to talk about this morning is really the heart of critical race theory. We're going to be talking about racial disparities and discriminations and how those two things correlate or don't correlate. Mm -hmm. And we think that if you understand this aspect of critical race theory – that everything else just kind of falls into place. Yes. Right? Um, You have a good illustration to explain what we're doing this morning. Share it with us.
1: So we don't want to be redundant. We don't want to go back through every tenet of Mm -hmm. critical race theory and attack each one specifically. Uh, And we don't need to because critical race theory is built on this primary assumption. Mm -hmm. And so uh, an illustration for this, uh, I don't know if it's a good, good illustration, but in ancient warfare, armies would often line up and send out their champion, their their best fighter and those two would duel and whoever was left standing that army was was victorious. David so, and Goliath, exactly. Yeah. So we're we're viewing this particular component of critical race theory yeah. as their champion, and yeah. that if this falls,
0: then like, the the beast falls everything with it. Falls, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, another introductory matter. Uh, the question of whether or not we're qualified to do what we're about to spend an hour plus doing, right? Spoiler alert. Spoiler We're not. Okay. Even though, Russell, you, brother, you worked in the corporate world. Uh, You did a lot of what we're going to do in this episode. You did it on behalf of uh, an agency that shall not be named, a company that shall not be named. But you you had great success. You won multi-million dollar lawsuits. I mean, you were functionally a subject matter expert on things that you were not really a subject matter expert on. Right. Dealing with published data and statistics. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, but that should be encouraging.
1: Yeah. Uh, because I don't have any formal training in this.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and we don't think we think it's a logical fallacy to say that you have to have a PhD in you know, data and analytics in order to just look at the information that's out there and come to a logical conclusion. Yeah, right. And,
1: and all we're going to be doing is basic reasoning. Yeah. Uh, it's a gift from God. We should yeah. use it. And interestingly in in the evangelical world there's not a lot of people even critics of of critical race theory yeah. talking about what we're going to be talking about today
0: they're dealing with it from a philosophical and theological perspective mm-hmm. but very few christians are getting in there and going hey the numbers don't add up yeah okay and then uh final disclaimer final introductory matter uh this is going to be a long episode uh, we don't want to break this down into six different mini episodes. We just hope that you have the mental tenacity uh, to sit and really dedicate the time to listen to basically what's the equivalent of a sermon, right? Yeah. You, you should be doing this kind of thing every Sunday anyways, right?
1: Uh, yeah, and think of this like eating your vegetables. It's, okay. not, it's not going to be comfortable. Yeah. Uh, you may need to press pause and pick up tomorrow.
0: Sure. Uh, Do you do that with your vegetables? Yes. Okay. I leave them out on the
1: counter, try again another day. (laughs) Right. And uh, yeah, but this is important. Yeah. And there's really no way to do what we're going to be doing in this episode other than to get into the weeds and walk line by line through the kind of claims that CRT makes and and just systematically go through each data
0: point. This episode is kind of like some of those books in my library that I know I'm not going to read cover to cover. It's more like reference material. I'm going to come back to it and consult it. Probably not going to read it everywhere through through, and through. Okay, so those were the introductory matters. Now we have to offer some disclaimers, okay? Yeah. So disclaimer number one, racial disparities are real, right? Yeah. So we could talk about all different kinds of statistics. Russell, just give us a couple of examples of racial disparities.
1: Uh, there is a disproportionately high number of black Americans in prison.
0: Okay, I'll give you one now. White males are 77% more likely to commit suicide. Okay. Okay. Than black and Hispanic males. There you go. Give me another one.
1: Uh, White Americans are far more likely to be pulled over and convicted of DUI than
0: minority Americans. Uh, Asian Americans are a thousand times more likely to enter into an Ivy League school. That number is not real, but it's basically true. Okay. So we do believe in racial disparities. What this episode is going to be focusing on is whether or not any time we see a racial disparity, it is necessarily, or I should say a negative racial disparity. That's right. It's necessarily the co- it's, it's been caused by racism. Yeah, and that's important
1: yeah. because this is the foundational tenet yeah. of critical race theory.
0: Anywhere that you see racial disparity, negative racial disparity, it has been caused by racial discrimination. That's right. Okay. So we want to say that's not true, but we do believe that racial disparities are true.
1: That's right. And many of them are terrible. Yeah. We, we would think that they're awful things that need to be understood, yeah, that's we would right. We just disagree with the diagnosis.
0: Amen. And then two, we we want to say that discrimination is real. Mm. Um I've experienced that as as a Hispanic looking man <laughs> uh, living in Alabama, you know, uh I, I grew up around all my all my friends were black. Growing up, I've seen people be called you know horrendous names and experience terrible things. We do believe that discrimination is real. Yes. Anything you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, I would just say you may have personally experienced racial discrimination uh, and and have some terrible memories of that. When you hear us say something about broad statistical disparities, yeah. please don't hear us saying that what you experienced didn't happen, right? Or that others haven't experienced similar things. Uh, there's just a very big difference between individual instances of discrimination yeah. and using discrimination as sort of a blanket to explain huge amounts of data.
0: Yeah,
1: true. We want to keep those two things separate.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's it for disclaimers. Uh, let's, let's dive in. Let's do it. First, let's establish that it is possible for racial disparities to exist for reasons other than racism right? Can you give us an example?
1: Well, we just mentioned uh, that whites are Mm -hmm. far more likely to be pulled over, convicted, arrested and convicted for DUI.
0: Give us another example.
1: Uh, There are far more black uh, music stars in our country than Japanese music stars. Also
0: far more black NBA stars, right? Right. Okay. Um, So simple answers like racism are easy answers but they might not be accurate answers. That's right. They may be emotionally satisfying, which is odd in many ways. uh, In today's climate, it
1: it is emotionally satisfying.
0: Yeah, and that's what we really look for is an easy answer that that makes us feel good. What we don't want to do is really wrestle with other alternative answers that maybe don't make us feel as good.
1: Yeah, and and unfortunately, that leads to a lot of misunderstandings and wrong answers. Yeah, that's right. And so I don't think anybody out there would argue that uh, the reason that there are more whites arrested and convicted for DUI is because the police force is inherently racist against whites. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so there, I think it's an, it's an easy beginning point for us all to agree that there is uh, a possible explanation for that disparity that has nothing to do with racism.
0: Yeah. And later in the episode, we're going to be talking about disparities that exist even within members of the same race. Right. But who have different cultural backgrounds.
1: And so if yeah. that's true... In that one example, just loosely hold the idea that it could be true in many examples, even some where you're certain you know why there's a racial disparity. Yeah, Uh, because we want to look more carefully at this and we want to look for the best explanations.
0: Yeah, which leads us right into the next point. Given that it's possible for a disparity to exist, that isn't the result of racism. We should look at each case of racial disparity, which is really hard to do, but it's necessary, each case of racial disparity individually and try to determine if there could be better explanations Mm -hmm. uh, than racism in each of those instances. Yes. Right? So, Russell, riff on that for a little bit.
1: Yeah, so better explanation is a little vague. Yeah. When we say better explanation, we're looking for something that in, in... Science and reasoning and logic, you would, you would say an explanation that has the most explanatory power. Right. In other words, it's the explanation that accounts for all of the information you have available, yeah. not just a little piece of it. Right. Uh, we do this actually in theology. So, the Trinity, yeah. for example, uh, if you didn't have a Bible, all you had was the Old Testament, let's say, and you had Deuteronomy 6 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is, is one. one. You're not going to take that one verse and arrive at your understanding of the triune God. Right. You have to look at all of Scripture, mm-hmm. and you have to take every verse that implies the personhood of the Spirit, yeah, and the personhood and the deity of Christ, right. and the oneness of God. Right. And when you put those all together, you see that the Trinity is revealed. Yeah. And so we have to take that best explanation that accounts for the most data and, and use that. Rather than what may be an emotionally satisfying answer for some people, which is that, well, the Bible says there's only one God, so Jesus must be a man.
0: Yeah, you or know? he must be a lesser, lower God. Or the or whatever. spirit is a yeah. force.
1: You know, and, and you see a lot of cults do that because mm-hmm. that's their tradition and and yet it's not a powerful explanation if you take into
0: account all of what scripture says. Yeah. It's an easy, simplistic answer, but it's not the correct answer. That's right. Okay. We do this in medicine too. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was uh, training to be a paramedic, we had to take our exams and those exams, uh, even at the low level of paramedic were extremely difficult because you would be given a a scenario and you would be given all this, you know, background health information and all that stuff. And then you had to choose between four answers and three of them were pretty close to right. So you've got a patient with a bunch of symptoms,
1: right? What's his disease?
0: Right, exactly.
1: And some of them might be close. but Some of them are real close. But there's other symptoms that rule that out. Yeah. And so you have to find the diagnosis that accounts for everything mm-hmm. you see.
0: Yeah, that's right. So that's what we're trying to do here today. We're not trying to find uh, the answer that takes into account three-fourths of the data having to do with racial issues in America. Yep. Okay. Um, now let's talk a little bit about correlation Versus causation. Oh, would are, you say this is those the, are big words? I know. Uh, before we explain them, would you is it fair to say you think this is the most common logical fallacy
1: on this subject? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think I think we run into this every time, at least in my personal experience. Every time I talk with other Christians about racial issues, and they start talking about systemic racism or structural racism, yeah. and then giving their arguments, there is an enormous misunderstanding behind that, where they're confusing correlation and
0: causation. So correlation and causation, that fallacy is basically this. Just because two things are happening at the same time or near each other in relation to one another doesn't mean that one is causing the other. That's right. Now, that's my layman's way of saying it. Do you want to say it in a more fancy way?
1: No, I think that's exactly right.
0: Yeah. So let's just get into an easy example of it.
1: Yeah. A classic example of this would be the relationship between ice cream sales mm-hmm. and forest fires. Okay, So on, on the face of it, those things sound like they have nothing to do with each other. And they don't. And they don't. But if you actually look at the data over a period of time for ice cream sales, and you look at that same period of time and look at the amount of forest fires that our country has had, mm-hmm. you will find that every time ice cream sales go up, forest fires go up right along with it. Yeah. Every time ice cream sales go down, forest fires go down Right along with ice cream sales. Correlation. Well, yes. Yeah. But what if, what if somebody was out there making a very passionate argument mm. that ice cream sales were causing forest fires? And if you really care about the environment, mm-hmm. you need to stop eating ice cream. Sean DeMars. Shut
0: down, Blue Bell. Wait, why are you saying? <laughs> I don't eat Ben and Jerry's every night. <laughs> so I mean, well, how
1: do you respond to that?
0: Yeah, what you try to do is you try to show this very passionate person who's, you know, cares about something that's good that uh, correlation doesn't equal causation. You try to show them that there's in fact no causal that's effect right. between ice cream sales. Yes. And then you would and so how would you explain that well, to them? It
1: can be hard to do. Yeah. So the easiest thing to do to try and determine is this causal is look for exceptions. Look for examples or counterpoints where suddenly this relationship gets broken where suddenly there's a difference between ice cream sales and forest fires that couldn't be explained if one was causing the other. So let's imagine you start looking through the history of ice cream sales in California, and you find out that there was a two-month period where there was an ice cream shortage. Mm -hmm. And during this two-month period, forest fires were higher than they'd ever been. Mm. Well, now you have a counterpoint. You have something that that particular explanation, that ice cream causes fire, Yeah. Is not able to explain. Yeah. And when you see that, it's a it's a huge red flag warning light that there is no causal explanation here and you need to look for a third explanation. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's Heat. Temperature. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So if you have temperature go up, people want more ice cream. It's yeah, I do. If you have temperature go up, there's typically a much higher chance of a forest fire because it's dry and and crisp and ready to burn. Yeah. So it's through finding counterexamples yeah. that don't line up with the narrative that you yeah. can disprove anybody trying to say that there's a cause and effect relationship yeah. where it's actually just a correlation.
0: And, and it, it can't just be a one-off counter example. It has to be something significant that's That's, right. that's lethal to the, to the narrative. Right. Something that
1: would really, really throw a wrench yeah. in the explanation.
0: Now, we're talking about this because that's essentially what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to try to say, hey, here's the prevailing narrative. Here's the correlation and causation narrative. But look at these counter examples. Yeah. And if you look at them Well, then that means that this can't be true. That's right. Right? Okay. And now, brother, take it away. Well, we're going to run into a hurdle right out of the gates here. Uh, If you listened to
1: our last episode, yeah, sorry to tell you. When we talked about the history of racial relations in the United States and the disparities we see in the black community, we talked about a particular individual, Patrick Moynihan. Yeah. And his observations in the late 60s that pointed to something other than racism, as the culprit behind these growing disparities.
0: Particularly cultural factors.
1: He said, look, this is a... He actually used the phrase, it's a tangle of pathology, Mm. where you have this mix of fatherlessness and poverty and fatherlessness leading to children who are undisciplined and lack ambition and lack self-restraint, who commit crimes, who don't get good jobs, who have their own children out of wedlock. And this cycle just yeah. continues to uh, to just burden the black community, and it it's only going to get worse. And so in pointing to these sort of cultural phenomena, he was immediately accused of racism.
0: Yeah, of a particular kind of racism, which we now call cultural racism. That's right. Yeah. And so
1: uh, CRT opponents will say, if you talk like this— if you say that there's something within the black community that's causing these disparities, rather than from without racism, yeah. then you're a racist. It's you know, it's just cultural, really. Racism yeah. is just a new form of the old racism that says I'm genetically superior right. to you because of my white skin. So as one author puts it, if skin color is irrelevant to outcomes, as it would be in a racially equal world, then the choices of individuals with different skin colors should have nothing to do with their relative outcomes. So he goes on to say that basically... If everybody's equal, then the world should be full of an equal number of scoundrels, geniuses, slackers, hard workers, criminals, CEOs, saints and sinners for every racial group.
0: Yeah. So every racial group should basically look exactly the same if you were to like line up their moral virtues and their defects. That's right. Right.
1: And so he says that if you disagree with this, then you're basically saying that there's something inferior about being black that makes them have these cultural defects and therefore you're racist. Right. Now, we would say that as as good as this sounds, it's actually a false dilemma.
0: Which is a, another kind of logical fallacy. And the logical fallacy of a false dilemma is what they do is they just create a false either-or scenario, That's right? right. Uh, silence or violence, right? Mm-hmm. The, these are your only two options. You're either helping or you're hurting.
1: Yes. Either you agree that yeah. these disparities are all caused by racism yeah. or you're saying it's that blacks are inferior
0: and you're a racist. But what if there's a third or even fourth option?
1: Well, we would say there's countless numbers of options. Okay. We're going to group them all into a third. Okay. And that third option is to say that there are external forces that can contribute to these disparities and even cause these disparities in the black community that are not Racism.
0: Some of them may be bad, external factors. Some of them may be immoral, just neutral. Well-intended
1: things yeah. that have bad consequences no one could see. Sure. And some of them may
0: even be good.
1: Yeah. Okay. But we would say that it's, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that there are external forces making these disparities... So that we're not saying that there's something intrinsically inferior about blacks that causes them to express culturally the sorts of things that they're expressing.
0: Right. And in the same way that we would say that there's not something innate in white people that leads them to be the most racist people on the planet. Exactly. Okay.
1: So this is where we would point to guys like Moynihan and Thomas Sowell and say they're onto something. Both pointed to the epidemic of fatherlessness which was incentivized through the mid-20th century by misguided, well-intended, but very misguided welfare policies, and that these have been a central factor in leading to the disparities that we see today and the cultural degradation that we see in black communities today.
0: Let me... Cookie is on, like, the middle shelf. Okay, let me try it to, down. Let, yeah, let me do what I do best. Okay. <laughs> Simplify things for the simple-minded. So what you're saying is that this is... This this phenomenon is is the result of a bunch of different complicated factors.
1: Yeah, as as Moynihan said, it's a a tangle of pathology. It's not just one thing.
0: See, I'm trying to make it simple. Use big (laughs) words again. A tangle of pathology. That means. Things are really complicated, y'all, okay? And and as complicated as that is, it's only been made worse by people who have been trying to help.
1: That's right, yeah. Okay. So now that we recognize this as a false dilemma and we're offering, we're opening the door to this third yeah. option, that there are external forces at work here that are far more complex than just saying racism. Right. We want to look at some of the major areas that we see racial disparities in our country. Okay. These are going to be the examples that, almost always come up right at the front of discussions about Mm -hmm. this when people are arguing that systemic racism is real. Okay, And we just want to look at the data just like we would with ice cream and forest fires and say, is that a causal relationship? Is this a good theory? Or is there other data that would question, make us question this theory? And could we offer a better explanation with our third option?
0: So we're we're about to get into the weeds. Here we go. All the engineers are so excited about what's to come.
1: So the first area (laughs) we're going to look at is the criminal justice system.
0: Yeah. So I'll just read a quote to you from the Equal Justice Initiative, from uh, I think uh, spearheaded by Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy. That's right. Uh, a b- great book in many ways. Yes. Um, but listen to the way that he talks about uh, blacks and the criminal justice system and he, in America. And he's going to
1: be particularly responding to incarceration rates. Okay. So disparities where you see far more black Americans in prisons than white.
0: Okay. Black men are nearly six times more likely to be incarcerated than white men. These racial disparities are rooted okay we have racial disparities, right, remember are rooted in a narrative of racial difference, the belief that black people were inferior, that was created to justify the enslavement of blacks. So according to this statement from the Equal Justice Initiative, there's no way that this disparity in, in incarceration amongst blacks could be caused by anything. Other than racism. That's right.
1: Now, does that make the most sense when we look at all of the data that we have available? We want to argue it doesn't. Okay. Um, Now, we want to break this down into two categories just to make it a little clearer. Uh, When you're in prison, the assumption is you committed a crime. Right. But there's all kinds of different types of crimes. Let's break this up into violent crime and nonviolent crime. That's helpful. Here's why I want to break it up into violent crime first Mm. and focus on this primarily for the first section here. That's because violent crime is the reason most people are in prison. So if you look at data for prisoners between 1980 and 1990, Mm -hmm. which was the period of time in our country which saw the greatest prison growth for people who are incarcerated, uh, 36% of the growth in state prisons And state prisons are where most prisoners are, right? And so, thirty-six percent of the growth was from violent crimes. So Hmm. compare this with thirty-three percent for drug crimes, yeah. And you can see that violent crime is outpacing that by a couple percentage points. Okay. Uh, Since then, drug offenders have played an even smaller role in state prison prison expansion. So, from nineteen ninety to two thousand, another ten-year period, violent offenders accounted for fifty-three percent of the census increase. Uh, and all of the increase from to, from 1999 to 2004. Mm. So violent criminals have uh, accounted for nearly all the growth in the prison population, yeah. and they make up the majority of prisoners in our prison system. Interesting. Now, it's okay. not to say that there aren't a huge number of people in prison for other types of crimes. Sure, yeah. But violent crime is the majority. Okay. Now, what CRT advocates often fail to note or avoid talking about is that black men commit a disproportionate amount of violent crime
0: that's that's key
1: that is a that's a key fact is that if if you look at this segment of the population black american men disproportionately they commit a huge amount of the violent crimes that we see in our country
0: let's let's look at some numbers okay and this is from the justice department not from russell uh russell's blog (laughs) not from russell googling morgan county alabama statistics (laughs) According to the Justice Department, blacks commit homicide at eight times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined mm-hmm. in the 75 largest counties of the United States, which is where most of the population resides. Think,
1: think L.A. County,
0: right? huge county, yeah. tons of people. That's right. Blacks commit over 50% of all violent crimes, though they're 15% of the population in those counties. These crime disparities are repeated in every large American city.
1: That's a huge piece of data yeah i mean that that disparity is enormous Mm -hmm. so if we're talking about racial disparities we can't just look at the disparity of blacks in prison versus other ethnicities we have to look at the crime rate as well yeah and they what we see is that black americans commit a disproportionate amount of violent crime so this brings us to a question we started with one disparity that there are far more blacks in prison than there should be looking at their percentage of the population how many blacks are in america not many how many blacks are in prison a lot yeah But if we just stop there, we don't have all the data. If we also look at the rates with which the black community is committing violent crime, well, it it actually seems that that reflects, that the prison population is reflecting real crimes. It
0: has more explanatory power.
1: Yeah, so it, it makes you wonder, you know, wouldn't we expect to see more black Americans in prison if black Americans are committing violent crimes at such disproportional rates?
0: Yeah, possible critical theory critical race theory objection number one violent crime rates among blacks is the result of economic inequality so poverty uh, which is the result of racism you know yeah racism downstream from that poverty which is always going to produce violence
1: right so this is this is just another way of, of kind of refocusing the statistics back to the narrative that it's all racism so yes okay we do see that black americans are committing a disproportionate amount of violent crime however the reason for that is also racism, and it's racism that comes through socioeconomic uh, disparity. Okay, if you're poor, you commit more crime.
0: Yeah, so is that true?
1: Well, we're going to get to that. Let's okay. let's take this and the second response, and we'll walk through both of them in order.
0: Okay. Well, second objection: This is just the result of the trauma of slavery and segregation on the collective psyche of the African American community.
1: Yeah, this. So this is another response that you can sometimes hear in these discussions. It's not as polished as the first one. You know, okay. it's it's really just, uh, it's it's saying that what do you expect? You know, given our country's history of racism and segregation and Jim Crow, what yeah. do you expect black Americans to be angry and to be? Uh, you know, not have the same sort of self-control and and commit violent crimes as a result of the yeah. trauma they've experienced. Okay. Uh, We're going to go through both of these. Let's start with this idea that socioeconomics, poverty, leads to crime. Because if that's the case, if being poor makes you commit violent crimes, Mm -hmm. well then if being poor is a result of racism, then critical race theorists are right.
0: Yeah, that's right. So
1: is it the case? Now you grew up in a poor area. Yeah. You grew up in a violent area. Yeah. So when you hear that, Kind of makes sense, right?
0: Yeah, I feel inclined to believe that. I mean, it seems on the surface to make to make pretty good sense.
1: Yeah. So is this a correlation though or is it a causation?
0: Well, that's what we need to find out. That's right.
1: So the question is just because you see poverty and violence together in some places, is that because poverty is causing violence or is it actually just a correlation? Are these things related, but there's something else under the surface that's causing them to be together? Mm. And the way to find that out is just like with ice cream and forest fires look for a counterexample. Okay. And it just so happens that there is tons of counterexample data to say that this is actually just a correlation.
0: Well, since we don't have time for tons of counterexamples, give us like one or two. I'm
1: going to give you a little bit of tons. Okay. So <laughs> counterpoint number one. Okay. Uh, in the late 1960s, our country experienced the greatest increase in violent crime that our nation has ever seen. And it happened when we had a very strong economy with about a four percent unemployment rate mm. and contrast that with modern times uh, the recession of 2008 yeah. stock market crashed you know terrible unemployment rates things were not good economically uh, violent crime plummeted during that same period so that's sort of big picture data yeah that just doesn't match up with this theory
0: now let's go to a more specific example this is just one of many examples but it's very specific. Mm-hmm. Between 1950 and 1974, black income in the city of Philadelphia almost doubled. So I just want to pause there. I want that like... Think about if your income doubled right now. Okay, would
1: be doing this podcast? I'd
0: be going from a $500 a month <laughs> to a $1,000. Okay. In this 24-year period, in this one city, black income doubled. That's huge. It's huge. And homicides also doubled.
1: That is the exact opposite of what this claim is
0: yeah that would be the perfect counterexample that we talked about earlier yeah exactly
1: uh here's another one okay so the crime rate in different communities so let's let's look past the uh inner city black community yeah the crime rate in different communities shows no link between low income and crime so a good example this is the chinese community in san francisco uh, in the mid-1960s had the lowest family income of any ethnic group i mean these people were poor we're talking less than four thousand dollars a year yeah uh, but they had virtually no crime. Mm. There were there were literally at the time only five Chinese in all of California's prisons.
0: Whoa, it must have been hard to band a racial gang around that. Uh,
1: they, yeah, they probably had to pretend they were Hispanic. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and the other gangs were like, ah, come on, you can be with us. <laughs> or no. Another good counterexample is that of blacks in low socioeconomics, who have a low socioeconomic status, but who have different cultural backgrounds. Okay, so what you see is that, for example, immigrants from Haiti uh, to Miami in like the 70s and 80s had very low crime rates, right? Whereas their Americanized uh, African-American compatriots had very high levels of crime rates. Right, And
1: and these are immigrants that not only do they have black skin, Most of them can't read and write. Yeah. Many of them don't even speak English. Yeah. And they're incredibly poor.
0: Yeah. Every reason for someone to be violent, according to this particular narrative. If poverty
1: equals violence. Is there. We should see violence. Yeah. And we don't.
0: So Sowell does the same thing if you want to read about it in discrimination and disparities. He talks about, you know, uh, African-Americans from Caribbean descent so Caribbean Americans, but, you know, whose skin is just as black, who are just as poor, who have just as, uh, you know, little education and very low crime rates in their communities.
1: Uh, last point. This is not really data, but it's interesting information. Yeah. Uh, Jesse Jackson has himself said that black on black homicide is not an issue of poverty. Mm you know he's he's got his own explanations for that but yeah. but even somebody who would pretty much agree with everything in the in the critical race theory camp denies this relationship so the bottom line is poverty and violent crime they do appear together yeah they do tend to flop next to each other on a map but they're not causal. The relationship is not one causing the other. There's something else going on that makes these two things happen together because we see far too many examples of them not happening together.
0: And what it is that causes that, we're not here to talk about today. So let's move on to the (laughs) second objection, uh, the legacy of slavery as the cause of violence.
1: Yeah. So if violent crime rates were truly the result of injustices and uh, traumatic experiences in our nation's past, from slavery to Jim Crow to racial discrimination, then what we would expect to see, this is just common sense, hear me out, what we would expect to see is those who had personally experienced the worst of those periods of time, Yeah, you would think that those communities would be the most violent.
0: Or not even personally experienced, but just those who were closest to it in time. That's right? that's exactly yeah, right. Even okay. you
1: know, maybe it was your grandmother you saw was discriminated against. Yeah, that's right. You're a young man, but that experience, in theory, if this yeah. if this view is true, would then lead you to express those emotions violently.
0: Seems reasonable.
1: However, this doesn't line up. Okay. So if you look at history, think about the periods in our nation's history that saw the worst injustices against blacks. Uh, and then look at the rates of violent crime in the black community. They are enormously separated. Mm. They don't line up on the timeline together.
0: The further you move away from uh, slavery, reconstructionism, Jim Crow, uh, towards freedom, liberty for all, yeah. uh, the worse things seem to get f- for violence in the black community.
1: That's right. So, you know, this disparity. So let, Let's back up. You know, the emancipation happened in the late 1800s. Yeah. Then you have uh, Jim Crow and segregation up till around the 1950s. In the 1950s, the Supreme Court uh, does away with legal segregation. Uh, not to say that racism and discrimination ended. No, of course But not. there was now more equality under the law than there had ever been. Yeah. Uh, and yet violence peaks enormously in the late 60s through the 80s. Mm-hmm. As we see more equality under the law. Yeah. We see a general... Uh, acceptance of different skin colors and a reduction in racist thoughts and ideas and beliefs among the American populace, it doesn't line up with this explanation. So national surveys, for example, conducted in the 1940s to the present have found incredible declines in racist and prejudicial attitudes among whites. Mm. Uh, So if racist attitudes themselves are becoming less and less common and the laws that made racism and discrimination legal have gone away, it, we just shouldn't be seeing this l- very, very late uptick in in violent crime in the black community. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think that answers both of the objections to this high rate of violent crime uh, w- among the black community. And so now I think we should offer what we see as a better explanation. Go for, for it.
0: So back to Moynihan. Back to
1: Moynihan. Patrick Moynihan was right to call the cause of disparity among blacks a tangle of pathology. Again, big words, Basically, he was saying it's real complex. There's no simple silver bullet answer that's going to explain all this. But its its central feature was the deterioration of the black family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he said that that deterioration was not only leading to all the other disparities that, that they were seeing, but it led to higher rates of violent crime among young black men. Mm. So this Theory, I I think this is a better explanation as we've talked about before because it explains what these other explanations cannot. Right. So fatherlessness explains why, for example, the Haitian immigrants that flooded into Miami had, though they had black skin and though they were very poor, had very low crime rates. Yeah. In some instances, less than the whites that they lived around. Yeah. Why is that? Well. One example or one answer to that is that Haitians retained a very strong traditional family structure when they migrated to Miami.
0: As someone who grew up in a single mother home and who had nothing but black friends who grew up in single mother homes, uh, I'm telling you, the absence of a father in your home will lead to your teenage son running wild, and that will eventually lead to violence and chaos and destruction.
1: Absolutely. So it also explains the timeline issue. So if we're going to say that it's slavery and injustice and uh, segregation that causes these violent attitudes, why are we seeing it decades after all these things have have been done away with? And why are we seeing it when the general attitude in the white population is less and less racist? Well, the black family began, after emancipation, in a pretty rocky place.
0: Yeah, it was tough.
1: I mean, you have to think. Blacks were literally bought and sold. Yeah, And so you had families that had been ripped apart, uh, men and women who were married and had children together that were now never able to see each other and working on different plantations for different slave owners. Yep. And so this was this was a bad starting point uh, and, and clearly an external and racist starting point. Absolutely. Nothing intrinsic in the black community yeah. was causing
0: this. They were set up for failure. That's right. Yeah
1: now this actually explains the slight elevation of black violence in the late 19th and early 20th century I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say that that could have had some impact the this deterioration of the black yeah. family
0: I wouldn't I would go stronger I wouldn't say could have I would say almost certainly did sure okay
1: over time however the black family did does seem to stabilize if you look at history. Yeah. So in 1880, for example, there's a study of American family structures in Philadelphia, and it showed that three quarters of all black families were nuclear families. That's incredible. So mom, dad, kids, maybe yeah. a grandmother. Uh, and in New York City in 1925, 85% of black households were two parent households.
0: Wow. I don't think that's true of most white households today. Well,
1: in, in fact, uh, you know, at the time from 1890 to 1950, black women had a higher rate of marriage than white women. Wow. And in 1950, only 9% of black children lived without their father. Mm. So mm. we go from the matriarchal family of post slavery, yeah. uh, emancipation that was really just uh, wrecked by racism. Yeah. And we see improvement. Yeah, and significant improvement. we see traditional marriage, and we see those marriages uh, succeeding. Yeah. And we see children living with both parents in the home all the way into the 1950s.
0: So, so what happened?
1: Well, in the 1960s, violent crime among blacks skyrockets. Hmm. And we also see a sudden and dramatic shift in the structure of the black family. So in 1960, remember 1950, 9% of black children lived without their fathers.
0: Okay. Within a decade.
1: 1960, about 22% of black households were now single parent. Okay. In 1980, that had more than doubled to 56%. By 2000, 70% of all black children were being born into single parent families.
0: And that's because racism was getting worse.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. So that's one way to explain it. Okay. So if you're committed to the narrative that racism is behind every racial disparity, then that you have to take that answer. Yeah. Even when historical data shows that not only do blacks during this period have more legal freedom than they ever have had in the United States, but also general trends and attitudes about race and racism in the United States are getting better and better among whites.
0: Not perfect, but trending in the right direction. Trending
1: in the right direction. So this is a direct contradiction to the claim that this is the result of racism.
0: So what could it have been then? What what causes this uh, significant downgrade in the African American family?
1: Well, as you know, we've already talked about the family is deteriorating. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about why that is in a second, but let's, okay. let's stick to violent crime for a minute.
0: Okay. Because right.
1: fatherlessness turns out to be a significant risk factor for violent crime and incarceration. Yeah. So born without a dad in the home, mm-hmm. you have a enormously higher chance of doing something violent that gets you put behind bars. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is not merely the presence of a father either. So it, it's actually just the presence of a functioning, healthy, loving family. Okay. So yes, single parent households lead to a lack of supervision and the discipline of children. But even homes with two parents, uh, where those homes are dysfunctional and there's domestic abuse or alcoholism, uh, this leads to an incredible risk of children becoming violent criminals. Sure. And and so, unlike poverty, the rate of juvenile violent crime is closely linked to single parent families. Okay. So remember before the explanation that we we countered that, well, it's because they're poor that they're committing violent crime. Right. There's not a link there. Okay. Sometimes they appear together, but it's clearly not causal. Well, in this case, the rate of juvenile violent crime is so closely related to being in a single parent home that I think it's a very good case to say it's causal. Okay. Um, so a good example of this, just a data point to share with you. Uh, states with, lower, with a lower percentage of single parent families on average will have lower rates of juvenile crime. And a state-by-state analysis indicates that, in general, a 10% increase in the number of children living in single-parent homes, including divorces, accompanies a 17% increase in that state's juvenile crime rates. Wow. So, I mean, that's a smoking gun. Yeah, it is. You got a bunch of young men out running around doing violent things, and that number is exactly tied to the rates of single-parent homes that are raising kids. Yeah. I mean that is the better explanation. Yeah, This is. accounts for the data in the way those other explanations can't. That's true. And, and on top of that, there are studies out there that actually control for poverty. You think about the Haitian immigrants, for example, mm-hmm. that look at households where single mothers are raising children and you'll find poor families and rich families, black families and white families, no matter where you are, no matter how much money you make, no matter your skin color, if you're raised in a single parent home, you have risk. that same risk. Yeah. Uh, so again, it's a better explanation.
0: Now, let's, let's bring this back to the gospel, okay? Let's, let's bring this back to a Christian world. Please do. Yeah. As Christians, we recognize that marriage and children are both gifts, right? They're given to us, the, the nuclear family, which is sometimes idolatrous, uh, but does not mean that it needs to be abandoned, okay? They're given to us by God, and when we do throw these gifts away, it has consequences. That's right. If the building blocks of society, the family, begin to crumble, society itself will crumble soon after.
1: Yeah, and and, and that is a theological explanation that are though, though we may have secular people who agree with us on these observations. Yeah, behind that you have to understand that through the Christian worldview, this makes sense yeah. theologically. Yeah. So, Sean, are we just saying with all of this? that black people are just unable to maintain stable families, that there's just something wrong. Just
0: something them. innate with them because yeah. of the blackness. I think if we were to be saying that, that would be cultural racism. Yeah. That would be what we're accused we of. We would be racist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, no, but- there's, there's nothing innate in uh, Hispanic families, Chinese families, black families that, lead, that would necessarily lead them to have uh, a poor family structure.
1: That's right. And yeah. so so getting back to why this happened, you asked that question a little while ago. Yeah, that's right. Why did the black family go from in the 1950s to very stable, yeah. mar- marriage rates higher than those of whites, uh, 9% of children without uh, two parents, Yeah, very small percentage. Why did that suddenly in the 60s and then in the 70s yeah. just fall apart?
0: Well, I'm going to give you an answer that seems simplistic. Okay. And uh, if you're listening to this and you're not entirely on board with the argument that we're making here... You're going to be pretty quick to reject this almost one word or phrase answer outright, but bear with us. The welfare state. Now, hold on. Okay. (laughs) I'm holding.
1: Welfare is a good thing, right? It helps people. Uh,
0: It can be. I certainly think it's good to have some kind of safety net mechanism in society to care for the weakest and most vulnerable among us, but there's a way that you can do that that is incredibly helpful. Right. There's a way that you can do that that is... uh, harmful beyond imagining
1: so we're not just saying oh the word welfare and anything it represents is just wrong no we're saying (laughs) we're saying that the unintended consequences
0: of poorly thought out welfare policies that's right yeah have done a tremendous amount of damage I think Thomas Sowell and I don't know if you have this later in your notes but if you do I'll just steal your thunder he he says it better than anyone he says how is it that the black family was able to survive slavery and Reconstruction, and Jim Crow South. How was a black family able to survive that and then die at the hands of the American welfare system? Mm.
1: Well, yeah. That's what we're going to explore. As as Sowell has pointed out, a vastly expanded welfare state in the 1960s destroyed the black family.
0: Okay. Are you going to explain that? Oh, yeah. I plan to. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready.
1: (laughs) So we think Sowell was right. Okay. A vastly expanded welfare state in the 1960s, destroyed the black family. Okay. And that timing lines up perfectly with the historical trend in violent crime and socioeconomic disparity, all the disparities that we see yeah. in the black community. So, uh, you know, just to back up a little bit, remember in 1950, 9% of black children lived in single-parent families. Okay, In 1960, before the expansion of the welfare state, it was a little worse. It was at 22%. Uh, And then that number just skyrockets. It doubles in 10 years. Uh, And and now we see higher than 75% of black children born in single-parent homes. Yeah. Uh, Well, cash welfare, that's not a new thing. It wasn't even a new thing in the 1960s. Cash welfare existed in some form or another since at least the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some welfare expansion did take place under the Kennedy administration, Mm -hmm. but it was President Johnson's Great Society program uh, in 1964, that substantially increased the benefits yeah. of welfare and also took the control of the welfare system and made it primarily the responsibility of the federal government. Okay. So, uh, one historian from Harvard who's looked at this, his name is Paul Peterson, uh, he points out that many of these programs actively discouraged marriage because welfare assistance went to mothers so long as no male was living in the household.
0: So, yeah. Uh, economists know that everything is incentive-based. That's right. right. So if you say, if there's a male in this household, you won't get this money, what will that incentivize the mother to do?
1: Right. Well, I mean, they literally... So this is a quote. Okay. Uh, welfare assistance went to mothers so long as no male was boarding in the household. Marriage to an employed male, even one earning the minimum wage, placed a risk, placed at risk, a mother's economic well-being. Mm. So the idea here was, if there's a man in the household, well, you'll do Okay. Yeah. It's interesting that even back then, yeah, uh, the the people who were putting these policies in place recognized the benefit of having a father in the home. Absolutely. For socioeconomic reasons. Yeah. And so they would actually audit homes of of women who accepted these welfare benefits. Yeah. They'd come up, they'd come by and make sure there was no man living there. Yeah. So they were driving, they were incentivizing single parent homes. Uh, these benefits were extremely generous. So let's give you an idea of what this incentive looked like. Okay. Uh, according to Peterson, it is estimated that a 1975 household, the head of the household, the woman who is receiving these benefits, would have earned twenty thousand dollars a year.
0: Russell, you can't live on twenty thousand dollars a year.
1: You ever watch uh, old TV shows like Leave It to Beaver? No. Uh, well. Okay. Little The beaver will go to uh, the candy shop and yeah. he'll buy like a huge bag of candy for five cents. Oh, yeah. Inflation. okay. So in today's dollars, that was $90,000 a
0: year. Wow. Are you jealous yet? I'm super jealous. Would
1: you yeah. uh, be willing to kick your husband out of the home in order to get that money?
0: I'll kick my husband out of the house <laughs> right now for 90 grand a year. So, so
1: you see that there's an enormous incentive here.
0: Oh, absolutely. And
1: though they intended good, yeah. they literally paid black families to fall apart.
0: This this is just so reminiscent of so many different philosophies that intend to do good for the least among us that actually end up doing them in the long run the most harm. Yeah.
1: yeah. The, uh, the unintended consequences of well-intended laws yeah. are sometimes... Just awful.
0: If uh, just side note, if anyone's interested in reading more about the welfare state and how it developed in America into the the beast that it is today, Marvin Olasky has a book called "The Tragedy of American Compassion," wherein he details how America went from community based uh, care for those who are needy to governmental based and and the delete the the really negative effects of that. so were you trying to say, deleterious? Man, I was, <laughs> but I just didn't have the confidence in the moment. You saved the day. So.
1: This, this explanation, from my perspective, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It matches the historical timeline. It makes sense of all the data rather than just a piece of it. Yeah. So why is it that the guys back in the 60s and 70s who were writing about this, why, why are we not hearing more about this?
0: Well, basically, because they were ignored. They,
1: they were completely ignored. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So guys like Moynihan, were just, they were just dec- just shouted down as being racist. Uh, Thomas Sowell was ignored. Uh And what you have is instead, during this time period, scholars who are heavily influenced by a non-Christian, feminist, secular worldview, uh, basically they invented like a fantasy family. Mm. They had this- uh, Like Sims. Yeah, that's right. They had this healthy, poor man's Brady bunch kind of family in their minds. uh, And basically it was taboo to speak of any sort of- uh,
0: perceived benefit of having a father in the home.
1: That's exactly right. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. So even the Children's Defense Fund, which is uh, a huge fund that gives uh, money to poor kids, they actually imposed a gag rule on the role of fatherlessness in the plight of black children. So So, you were literally not allowed to work for them or partner with them if you talked about the family as part of the problem. Mm. So what we're seeing is it's a problem of timing. It's a problem of, of misguided policies and unintended consequences. Uh, and, and this became significantly worse over the decades, as in academic circles and socio you know sociological circles, mm-hmm. the correct answer to the question was categorically off limits.
0: Yeah, it's not even within the realm of discussion. That's right. Don't bring it up. Yep. You're a heretic.
1: And as we've mentioned before, uh, Divided by Faith, uh, it's a very popular book in evangelical circles tries to deal with some of these questions about racial disparities, doesn't mention the family once. Yeah. So that's a disparity that we need to talk about. Yeah. So let's move on. Okay. We're still in the criminal justice system.
0: But now we're going to move away from violent crimes into nonviolent crimes.
1: So make it simple.
0: Yeah. There's a lot that we could talk about here, but we're going to talk about the one, we're going to talk about the single issue that is brought up every time you talk about nonviolent crimes in the black community and incarceration rates crack. which is crack laws. Yep. Yeah.
1: So the the crack laws are sort of the shining example of systemic racism as as held up by the CRT side yep. of this.
0: L- let's explain what the crack laws are for those of us who have uh, for those who have not been imprisoned because of them yep. or who just aren't familiar. These laws enacted mandatory minimum sentences for crack cocaine, a drug oh. largely sold and used by African Americans, okay? Cocaine itself uh, is, similar, is chemically the same thing as crack. You know, you, it's just, you know
1: a lot about this. I
0: can tell you a little bit about how to cook it. I just you watched know. Dave Chappelle. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> crack is just coke that's been cooked with baking soda to turn it into a rock form. So, so you, you have, can smoke it and have a different experience of a high. But
1: cocaine, very expensive drug.
0: Yeah, just because you can consume so much of it. So crack is just cocaine with filler. Gotcha, you know, so um, and it has a a different effect when you smoke it. But basically, yeah, rich white people, super easy to use tons and tons of cocaine. It's like a party drug. Yeah, poor black people. uh, Yeah, very different experience. That's right. Okay,
1: so as the result of these laws, there was a significant increase in drug-related convictions for black Americans.
0: So here we have an example of systemic racism.
1: Yeah, here, I mean, here's a, here's a statistic. In 1986, before the enactment of federal mandatory minimum sentencing for crack cocaine offenses, the average federal drug sentence for African Americans was 11% higher than for
0: whites. Okay, so it's higher. It's
1: higher. There's a disparity there. Yeah. But four years later, the average federal drug sentence for African Americans was was 49% higher.
0: That's a lot higher.
1: That is a lot of black Americans in prison for a really long time. Because,
0: because of these crack laws. Because of
1: this particular type of this drug. Yeah. And so CRT advocates will point to this as a prime example of uh, white lawmakers uh, using, you know, ostensibly colorblind laws. Because mm-hmm. the law says nothing That's not about... not about being black. It says nothing about skin color. It's just about crack. But... If you look at the usage patterns of these drugs, crack was sort of like a black drug, and cocaine yeah. was sort of a white drug. And the the claim is that this sort of nefarious racist mm. conspiracy came yeah. together to make a law that would put black men in prison. Okay, uh, Michelle Alexander, she's the author of uh, the best selling book, The New Jim Crow. Okay, best selling of all time. Uh, all time. Okay, I, I think there's even a, uh, a Netflix series of that title or on that subject.
0: I think it's called 13th.
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah. 13th. Uh, anyway, she's made public comments in which she portrays the drug war as the, cr- as, as a creation of white politicians deliberately targeting black Americans in the same way that the Jim Crow laws of the past targeted specifically black Americans, uh, in very racist ways. Okay. And this is why the ACLU can run headlines calling, uh, the drug war, the new Jim Crow. Okay. So this, this is, if you've had any interaction with people who, uh, who are concerned about systemic racism, this is like item number one on the agenda.
0: I remember you having a conversation with a brother and you asked him for example, examples of systemic racism and he kind of kept coming up empty. And then finally he he hits you with the, I've got it. Yeah. I gotcha. This is it. Crack laws. That's it. Okay.
1: Now, disclaimer. Yeah. We don't support these laws.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean,
1: We're not saying that these laws are good right. just because we disagree with the conclusions that CRT advocates come to. Yeah, that's right. We're not like, keep the crack laws. I, I think there's uh, enough evidence that they've not done what they were intended to do. Sure. That there's probably much wiser ways to deal with drug use and the effects of crack in cities. Yeah. However. However. There is an enormous uh, elephant in the room here that we need to address, which is that while CRT advocates are, are right— that there is a real disparity here, and there are far more blacks in prison for far longer sentences because of the crack laws. Uh, these laws were not a nefarious white plot.
0: What? Are you sure?
1: I am very sure. Yeah, so okay. let's, let's start off first. Where did these laws come from? Well, the violence surrounding the sale and distribution of crack cocaine yeah. was the principal motive behind the laws.
0: And as someone who has grown up in a crack cocaine riddled neighborhood, I can tell you, it's bad. It's not a party drug. People who are trying to live in these communities at peace and just do their life, be, take their kids to school, you know, not worry about somebody breaking in in the middle of the night. When crack takes over a neighborhood, you, what you do is you go, somebody better figure something out. That's right. Police officers better get tough. Yeah. Politicians better put laws in place. We can't live like this.
1: Yeah. And and so it, you know, that makes sense when you look at the effect that a drug like that has on the violent crime in a
0: community. Yeah, that's right.
1: And, and you might hear this and say, well, why don't you do that for other drugs? You know, why isn't our country coming down hard on other drugs that cause violent mm-hmm. crime? Well, we, we do. <laughs> look at meth laws. Yeah. I mean, meth has the same sort of mandatory minimum sentencing yeah. for the same reason.
0: But crack was the first hard drug that we really had to deal with at right. this at, to, to this extent. So. Yeah.
1: Second counterpoint. The thrust for these laws, the promotion Mm -hmm. of these laws, and the championing of them all came from black political leaders throughout the late 70s and 80s. Yeah. Uh, And so as a number of scholars have pointed out, early in the 1960s, uh, black residents and black neighborhoods were constantly dealing with violence related to crack cocaine. Right. Um, I mean, they were calling for increased laws and safety measures and increased Mm. sentencing Mm -hmm. at community meetings and churches uh, on the front pages of black newspapers like the Amsterdam News. Uh, One gentleman, George McMurray, who was the lead pastor of Mother AME Zion Church in Harlem.
0: Oh, I used to go to that church. In Harlem? No.
1: Well, Harlem, I mean, crack central. Yeah, right. So he's the pastor of this church, and in the 1970s, when the city faced this major epidemic of drugs. He wanted convicted drug dealers to spend the rest of their lives behind bars. Lock them
0: up, throw away the key. That's
1: basically what he said. Here's a quote from him. When you send a few men to prison for life, someone's going to pass the word down. It's not too good over here. So instead of robbery and selling dope, they'll think, I want to go to school and live a good life.
0: So civic leaders in the community faith leaders in the community, political leaders in the community. That's right. All pushing for the same thing.
1: Yeah. And and that's a measure of just how bad the violence related to crack was. Yeah. Uh, The black support for the war on drugs didn't just come from New York. Uh, At the federal level, there were members of the newly formed Congressional Black Caucus Mm -hmm. uh, who met with President Nixon and who urged him to ramp up the war on drugs as fast as possible, particularly related to crack and the way it was affecting black neighborhoods. Yeah. you know the the sources for this information it's hard to find because this is just such a nettle in the narrative that this is a racist law. Okay. Um I pulled this all from uh New York Public Radio. Oh wow. Which is so conservative.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting.
1: Uh so Charlie Rangel who was a US representative for the New York area uh, from like 1970 to 2017. Long career. Wow. Uh, he initiated the federal response to the crack and epidemic.
0: Uh, white guy, Charles Rangel. Black guy. Black guy, Charles yeah, Rangel. He's part
1: of the Black Congressional Caucus.
0: Man, okay, keep going. You
1: need to read a newspaper. <laughs> I guess I do. Um, so in 1986, he basically said that crack has made cocaine frighteningly accessible to the youth. Mm-hmm. And a few months later, Brooklyn Congressman Major Owens explicitly rejected what is now received wisdom from sort of the left side of our media spectrum. He said, none of the press accounts really have exaggerated what is actually going on. The crack epidemic was as bad as any news article has stated. Mm. So here we have black leaders in New York and at the federal level pushing for these laws.
0: So if what you're saying is true, then the idea that crack laws were part of a nefarious plan on behalf of white legislators in order to do damage to the black community, it just can't be true.
1: That's exactly right. So yes, there's a disparity. Yes, it's a problem. But it's not racism. Once again, we find a third explanation.
0: Yeah, and maybe the most surprising explanation that it actually came from largely the black community itself.
1: That's right. And again, I've talked to a number of people who who use this as their smoking gun for proving that systemic racism is the biggest problem in America. Uh, And none of them are aware of this information. Yeah. None of them know the actual origin of these laws. So were they effective? Were they wise? Well, we could discuss that. But were they racist? You can't really make that argument.
0: So... This has been a very long episode. Uh, I think it's been a very helpful episode. I hope that you benefit from it, uh, listeners, viewers. But we're not done. But we're not done. What are we going to be talking about in part two?
1: So we're going to finish up discussing these uh, examples of racial disparity in the criminal justice system. We're going to talk about police shootings, police violence. Uh, and from there, we're going to move into socioeconomic disparities. We're going to talk about the wealth gap. We're going to talk about uh, inherited wealth. Right. And look at some of the different disparities that economically have been attributed to racism in our country.
0: Yeah. So before we wrap up, Russell, I just, I just want to make sure that we don't give any, anyone the opportunity to be uncharitable in their interpretations of, of, of what we're saying in this episode. We are not saying that racism either in the past or in some way in the present, has had no impact on the black community.
1: Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, that's not what we're saying.
0: We are not saying that any racial disparity is purely and always the result of things external to racism. We're just saying that the primary emphasis that people are placing on racism as an explanatory cause is misguided and inaccurate.
1: It's far too simple. Uh, it does not match the data that we see yeah. and as emotionally satisfying as it is, even for Christians yeah. who are who are ready and willing to admit sin in their own hearts yeah, yeah, and yeah. recognize sin yeah. within systems, uh, it's still not a good explanation of the facts.
0: If you don't understand the nature of the problem, you are not going to be able to offer meaningful solutions. So if you yes. really and truly care about uh, racial negative racial disparities in our country. It's really important that you pay close attention and try to keep an open mind with some to to these arguments that we're making. Because if we're right and you're wrong, the way that you're going to go about trying to fix these issues is going to be disastrous. It's going to be
1: a, a replay of what happened in the 1960s, which yeah. actually made everything worse. And so yeah. we we genuinely care right about uh, our country. We care about the disparities that we see in the black community. Yeah. We, we want to see repair in the black family. We yeah. want to see those disparities shrink and disappear. Yeah, uh, But we want to be really careful in, in diagnosing why they're there to begin with.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's all there is for today. Signing off. I'm Sean.
1: I'm Russell. And uh, get ready for round two.
0: Round two. Bye. Bye.